You know, when I thought of our message for this morning, that period between the resurrection and then the ascension is a little bit of a difficult period for preachers. Naturally, you're waiting for this glorious ascension moment and then the Pentecost day. So what do you talk about? Naturally, I find myself ducking all the time into these resurrection narratives. And I find myself very interested with John's gospel because the ending of John's gospel has had scholars debating it for centuries. John 20, the chapter before that which Ian read, sees the disciples coming to full faith in the risen Jesus. And as you read the chapter through, it seems to be a complete ending to that gospel. It's a rousing conclusion. There in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20, it says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, that's the end, isn't it? That's the end at the bottom. And then suddenly you turn over the page and you get John chapter 21. Well, where's that come from? And scholars would argue whether or not John actually wrote John chapter 21. There's many debates around it. It seems to form an epilogue at the end of the gospel. And here in John chapter 21, we find some of the disciples, not all of them, we don't know why it's not all of them, but it's just some of them. We find them on the shores of Galilee, and they're waiting for Christ to meet them just as they've been told to do. If you remember rightly from your resurrection narratives, there the angel that appeared to the women at the empty tomb said this to them, go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. So that's what they were doing. They were there. They were obeying this instruction and they found themselves on the shores of Galilee waiting. But clearly... They didn't know what to do. And Peter decides, I'm going out to fish. For three years, he's not been a fisherman. The skills that he had, he put aside. And instead, he became a follower of this man from Nazareth. And here we find him rediscovering a skill that he once had. A skill that was once his trade. And actually, it's as though they've all gone back to a former life. It's as though the three years haven't existed. Now, let's be frank, it wasn't the most successful of trips, was it? It was lacking in focus. It was lacking in energy. Professor Don Carson, in his commentary on this passage of Scripture, writes this simple sentence to describe it. The fishing expedition... And the dialogue that ensues do not read like the lives of men on a spirit-empowered mission. They're not. They're not very good at it for professionals. They were going through the mechanics of fishing. But in truth, they were men without a purpose. And so in the middle of this fruitful fishing trip, they're encouraged by the risen Jesus on the shore to cast their net over to the other side of the boat. And instantly, the fortune changes. I enjoy coming away with the band because it means I can talk about my wife without getting a glare from the other end of the platform. Not that I talk nastily about her at all because she has got the most beautiful traits going on. One of the most wonderful things that she does, if you're going to tell her, tell her these things that I'm saying nice things about her, won't you? 
One of the things she thinks she does is random acts of kindness. And in our previous appointment at Gloucester, one Friday evening, she said to me, as we were going to bed, she said, I need to get up early because we're going shopping in the morning. I said, what do you mean by early? She said, no, I want to be in town by 8 o'clock. Okay, get into the car Saturday morning in town. We're there by 8 o'clock, and we're walking through the nice medieval part of Gloucester. If you know Gloucester, it's got a very historic part to the town. And there are alongside the cathedrals, these lovely medieval terraces with little quaint shops. And as we're walking down there, suddenly she grabs my arm and pulls me into this shop. And I discover it's a barber shop. And suddenly in the middle of the barber, she said, I bought you a present. Right? It's a full barber's pampering session. Well, what on earth is that? And she wandered out and said, I'll see you in an hour. An hour? What are they going to do in an hour? Anyway, sat down in the chair. Clerk comes around me and he starts to cut my hair. That, as you can see, that took a long time. So within five minutes, we finished that part of it. And I'm talking to him and I say, I've never seen you around. Oh, yes, when you, sir. When you, we've only been on three weeks. So we're offering these special offers that your wife has bought for you to try and encourage people in. Oh, okay. And then suddenly the chair goes back. And I feel like I'm at the dentist because I'm looking at the ceiling. And out of the blue comes this great shaving brush with foam on it and it's all over my face. And then he says, ah, right, no, no, I've got that wrong. And so he starts taking all this foam off my face. And then suddenly, on top of my head appears this hot towel. For two minutes, this hot towel appears. Then it goes, and the shaving foam comes back again. And then out, my corner of, out the corner of my eye, I suddenly see this huge, what seemed like a huge machete, which is actually a cutthroat <laughs> razor. It was actually a cutthroat razor. And he starts wafting it around. And then he comes towards me, and I'm thinking, oh, no. His hand's shaking. And I felt the need at that point to just say to him, excuse me, mate, have you done this before? <laughs> and he said, yes, sir, I've done it on many occasions. Well, I'm not joking, but 20 minutes later, he finally takes the last little bit off my, the, my chin, and he dries it down, and then he... He, he starts doing it. He says, oh, that's not very good, is it? Tell you what, sir, I'll do it again. <laughs> Don't think you will, mate. That's lovely, thank you. And then he decided, because I wanted to go, tell you what, I'll write you a credit note and you can come back again another time and have the procedure done. Needless to say, the credit note was never used. But the point of my story is, I felt the need to ask him, have you ever done this before? These disciples are on the shore in Galilee, and suddenly they're told to do something. And surely the light bulb must have appeared over their head. Actually, we've done this before. This is a deja vu. We've been here before. Isn't that what Jesus told us to do when we very first met him on the very first day? And here, three years later, he's asking us to do exactly the same. This miraculous catch of fish happened in Luke 5 that is now appearing in John 21. 
And you know, it's not a coincidence. It's done purposely. In the first incident, Jesus called them to be his followers. And more than that, he gave them a task. You all know it. He said, from now on, you will be fishers of men. The trouble was, just as they'd forgotten how to fish, they'd forgotten that they were to be fishers of men. And this little group of people on the shore of Galilee need to be recalled to their first purpose because they were men without a purpose. And so they were coming full circle. And this resurrection experience had a specific purpose and it was to help them rediscover the purpose for which God had called them in the first place. You see, the faith that they'd found in John chapter 20 had to give rise to effective service and disciple-making for Jesus. They weren't called to be fishermen. They were called to be fishers of men. And they'd forgotten that. And I've got to say to us all this morning that Jesus wants us all, all his followers, to serve him in spiritual ministry effectively. And week by week, I find myself asking the questions. How can I... Adrian Allman be an effective disciple for him in a world where expressions of faith are having to be renewed, to be redefined constantly in order that I can be authentic and relevant. What can Jesus do through me? What can he do with all my inadequacies? You know, that deja vu incident on the shore was to remind them that they had to live as people intentionally. They had to live with purpose for Christ. And this morning, I just want to suggest three ways at the end of our meeting that we can do that. First of all, I believe that effective disciples realize their insufficiency and Christ's all-sufficiency. Don't you find it interesting that without Jesus, they didn't catch anything? When he met them three years ago, they weren't catching anything. They'd been out all night, he said, not caught a thing until Jesus intervened. Three years on, exactly the same. And just before his crucifixion there in the upper room, you'll know the story. Jesus said to his disciples using that illustration from the vine and the branches in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And there in that boat, that came home to them in a very practical way. They would see, actually, I'm insufficient here. I guess we all have those sobering days when we realize that we're inadequate to face a challenge, meet a need, deal with a task. And I think the biggest problem often, certainly is for me, that when I become aware of my own inadequacy, I become paralyzed and I choose to do nothing instead. I sometimes go to the open air and I'm stood there thinking, gosh, how can I have a conversation? And my inadequacy paralyzed me and I find myself just standing there. It's happened to the greats of the Bible. And in John 21, Jesus, all he did was tell them where to put the net. Nothing else. He didn't do everything for them. He didn't fish for them. All he said to them in John 21 was, put your net there. He still expected them to cast it, land it, and then bring it into shore. If 
effective disciples trust in Christ to the extent that they recognize their insufficiency as well as Christ's all-sufficiency. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon simply said this, I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. I find it interesting that Peter wasn't the first man in that boat to recognize Jesus on the shore. It's all about Peter, this story, but he wasn't the first to recognize, it was John. John was the passenger that recognized Jesus, but it was Peter that decided that they weren't getting back to shore quick enough, and it was Peter that decided to go over the side of the boat and find him in his own strength. That's a stark contrast to the last time Peter was asked to walk on water. That was the last time, a stark contrast that he found himself. This was a man eager for fellowship with Christ. And the second point this morning that comes out to this, if we're going to be effective and authentic for him, effective disciples are eager for fellowship with Christ. Effective disciples are eager for fellowship with Christ. We would really, I'm guessing, we would really admit that fellowship with Jesus is one of the most important things we are to do. Would we not? Of course we do. And yet I'm quite sure that very few of us in this room are satisfied with the amount of time we actually do spend in fellowship with him. Martin Luther, the great theologian, was considered to be a legend when it came to fellowship with Christ. And he's said to have said this little quote, I have so much to do that I spend the first three hours in prayer. Wow. I'm not so sure I'd be able to do that even if I could. I'm too easily distracted. And actually, I can't use somebody else's time with Jesus to measure the effectiveness of my own because otherwise I'll constantly be defeated I'll miss the point because you see time with Jesus will look different from person to person and season to season and when I start to think more about what people think of my walk and how my relationship to Jesus appears then I've missed the point you know what speaks volumes to me about this little story is Peter jumps into the water and he doesn't care. He does not care. I'd love to have been on that boat. I'd love to have heard the comments of the other guys in that boat when he did that. You can hear them, can't you? Chuntering away. What's what's he doing? He's bonkers. He, He knows he can't walk on. What's he doing? He wasn't worried. He just did it. He didn't care what they thought. All that mattered was he was going to spend time with Jesus. And the effects of spending time with Jesus are cumulative. And we don't often realize it until later on in the life. One thing, our time with Jesus doesn't have to look the same in every season, but it should exist in every season. Question for you this morning. How's your time with Jesus? How's your time with Jesus? If we're going to live intentionally with purpose for Christ, then we should be eager for fellowship with Christ. For fellowship with Christ. Lastly, I believe that if we're going to be effective and if we're going to serve well, 
then first we've got to let Christ minister to us. I was reading a story of Archbishop Justin Welby. He was addressing the General Synod a few months ago. And at the General Synod, he tells a story of this little Anglican lady, 103 years of age. And he'd met her, and she'd been taken into hospital with pneumonia. And she'd recovered, but at 103, having recovered from pneumonia, the hospital said, listen, if you want to go home, you are going to have to have a care package, and you're going to have to have carers coming in morning and evening. Well, she was not happy with this. 103, she didn't want the carers in, thank you very much. But they insisted. The social workers at the hospital said, if you want to go home, that's the, that's the deal. So she reluctantly said, okay, that's fine. And so, morning and evening, the carers would get, come in. But this wily old lady decided she wasn't going to have this. So what did she do? She set an alarm clock an hour before the carers were due to come and get her up. She got herself up, she got herself washed, she got herself dressed. She made breakfast so that when they knocked on the door at 8 o'clock to get her up, she was already up, already washed, and it was already there. And she did exactly the same in the evening at 7 o'clock, knowing that the carers were coming at 8 o'clock. She'd go get her bath, go get into her night garment, someone's all ready to get into bed. And the carers could have come in day after day and said, what are you playing at? You know this isn't right. Stop doing it. But actually, she did it constantly, and she just kept doing it day after day. And you know, they didn't stop coming. Even though she made it very clear she didn't need them. And you know what? They kept coming. And even though she had the physical need, the only thing she wanted was companionship. And they kept coming, knowing that actually it was going to be a benefit to them because they got a break in their day. They're busy day as carers. Somebody was actually looking after them for half an hour by providing them with tea and toast and cheese and crackers and hot chocolate. Why do we not let Jesus minister to us well? We're so busy wanting to be active in mission and, do, and we forget to first let him do the ministry to us. When Peter gets to the shore, having waded from that boat, what does he find? He finds Jesus has made the breakfast. He finds Jesus has done everything for them. When he tried to do that before, you remember when he tried to wash Peter's feet? No, 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 he wasn't having any of that. But here on the shore, suddenly he allows him to do it. He shows us that if we're going to serve well, we should let Jesus minister to us first. You see, spending time with him is an opportunity to hear from him, to learn from him, and as a result, become more like him. And when we let Jesus provide for us, we have the strength and the resources to minister to others. Let's bring this all to a conclusion. I believe John 21 is a significant moment for those disciples. Because they were men without a purpose. And this second miraculous of catch of fish brought them back. It reminded them of that first one. It reminded them of what it was all about. They'd come full circle. And their faith in the risen Christ that they'd expressed in John 20 had to give rise to effective service and ministry. And as they were going to continue the work of building the kingdom of God, Jesus was able to work through them. 
So I ask a simple question this morning of myself and you. What can Jesus do through me? What can Jesus do through you? I'll tell you what he can do. He can impact those around you. And I just want to ask a question, a last one. In whose life are you having a spiritual impact? In whose life are you having a spiritual impact? To be effective, well, recognize your insufficiency and trust his all-sufficiency. Be eager for fellowship with him. And first, let him minister to you. And then make it the purpose of your life to make an impact on those around you. Because in his strength, we can effectively serve him and make him known. I want you to just reflect on that as we listen to the band play a band arrangement of what was a songster piece based upon that beautiful verse in Philippians. His strength is perfect because there on the shore, that's exactly what Peter found. He found the strength of God to be perfect for him and he would go on to make an impact. God would work through him. And as we listen, whose life are you impacting today?